Let me begin with a story of civil war, the civil war in Sudan. Um, for many, many years in Sudan, there's been a civil war, and it's been carnage, you know. Years ago, we used to see CNN uh, images about children with their uh, hands hacked off, and legs sometimes, or feet, right? That was, um, that was a Muslim-dominated um, uh, northern and central country attacking the animist and, and Christian uh, population in the south, southern, southern part of Sudan. This uh, nation finally became an independent nation. South Sudan became an independent nation just two years ago. And uh, now they're living with relative peace. But many, many people, as you can imagine, that during that civil war, many people had to flee their country to survive. And they would go to refugee camps. And one of the most famous was Darfur that we've heard about. Uh, others were over the border in Uganda. And uh, so people would go the best they could. They would travel at night and they would sleep during the day because if they got caught, they, they would be killed or maimed or something. One such a man left his town and took a number of days to go to a refugee camp and finally got to Uganda. When he got to Uganda, he had walked 150 miles to get there. After a few months, I mean, this is a, a refugee camp of thousands of people. He got acquainted with an Adventist minister. And the Adventist minister started sharing the Bible with him. And he was fascinated by all this. He was an animist. What's an animist? An animist is somebody who lives in the, in the spirits. Animus, Latin for spirit. So they, that, uh, he was an animist, and now he became a Christian. He became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. The old man baptized him, and so and right there in the refugee camp. And guess what? He was so excited about this new faith and about getting to know the real God, the real true God, that he decided to walk 150 miles home to share his faith with people that were still back home. Now, think about this, okay? He traveled at night and, 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 and slept during the day because it was dangerous. He left the country so that he could survive. And now he's going right back into the midst of danger, right? Right in the midst of danger, good chances that he would be shot or killed. So he shares his faith over a number of weeks with a number of friends and relatives after a few months, several of them are ready to become Seventh-day Adventists also. So you know what he does? He travels 150 miles back to the refugee camp to get a preacher to baptize them. And the only preacher he knows, of course, is the retired minister in the refugee camp in Uganda. When he approaches him about it, the old man says, Oh, my brother, I could never survive the trip. I could not do it. I, I will never make it there. No problem. So he walks 150 miles back. Every time there is all these danger, okay? He walks 150 miles back and he meets all of these people, expectant people, says, Okay, now we can be baptized. And he comes alone. And he says to him, and he says, good news, I found somebody who could baptize you. All we need to do is go to him. Sure enough, then they all, all seven or eight of them, now walk down 150 miles back 
to Uganda and they are baptized as Seventh-day Adventists in their new faith. So what do you think is going to happen with these guys? Are they going to be in the, safe, uh, in the relative safety of the refugee camp now? No way. Because they are in love with Jesus and they, are, they have burdens with others and, uh, for others and so they walk back 150 miles again. That's a total of 1,200 miles. No, 750 miles walking under extreme danger so they can share his, their faith with others. But this time, it takes them weeks to get there. Why? Because they stop in every village they can to share the good news of Jesus Christ. How, how, you know, who would do that kind of thing? Well, the only reason is Jesus was real in his life. He was so real in his life that no circumstance, no danger, nothing became an impediment to the objective of sharing what God had done in their lives. The night of Jesus' betrayal... We read in the book of John that he had this great need for the love and support of his friends. We talked about it in the last session. Instead, he gave the disciples his love and support via the Holy Spirit. And he made a promise to them about the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you, how long? Forever. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So the Holy Spirit really reveals Jesus. Many, many charismatics really focus on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit himself teaches something different. The Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, teaches that the work of the Holy Spirit is not regarding himself. The work of the Holy Spirit is to show you Jesus. So if you want to be a true charismatic, you're going to be in love with Jesus. That's really what's going to happen. And so, in John 14, 26, we, see, we read, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In uh, chapter 16, we read, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He shall glorify Me, for He shall take of Mine and shall disclose it to you. So what will the Holy Spirit do? Three things. The Holy Spirit will bear witness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will teach what Jesus taught. And the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. You see the Jesus-centeredness? Everything the Holy Spirit does has to do with Jesus. Enhancing Jesus, highlighting Jesus, explaining Jesus, reminding you what Jesus said. It's all about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the biggest promoter of Jesus in the universe. If you really want to know Jesus, you need the work of the Holy Spirit. To see Jesus as he really is. I will ask the Father. He will give you the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be where? In you. That's John 15, 16 to 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The world will behold me no more. But you will behold me because I live you shall live also. In that day, 
that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, in that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So what Jesus is trying to explain is that they should not be sad for him leaving. They were sad because he was leaving. He says, actually, as I leave, as I'll send the Holy Spirit to you, I will be closer to you than, when, than right now when I'm with you. That's the, that's the preposition here, you see. Um, in, in the previous verse, he, he abides with you and will be in you, right? He abides with them, but now he will be in them. And what's the difference between that preposition with and the preposition in? There's a whole world of difference, and every mother knows the difference between having a child inside and having a child with her, right? And every mother knows that when she becomes pregnant, she actually does have a different life in her, and it changes her forever. Jesus is trying to say the same thing. He says, look. The Holy Spirit will, I will be in you. I have been with you for three and a half years. I am going to be in you from now on. It is to your advantage, that's what he says, it is to your advantage that I go away because my relationship with you will be all the closer, all the more intimate than it was before. This means that when I receive the Spirit, what I get is Jesus Christ. And, it, and, and, you know, there's, people says, you know, people have all of these notions about when you're supposed to receive the Spirit, and how that's supposed to happen, et cetera, et cetera. The truth is a lot simpler than we make it. We receive the Spirit every time we surrender to Jesus Christ. That's when we receive the Spirit. We receive the Spirit every time we yield to Him. That's when we receive the Spirit. We receive this, I mean, the reception of the Spirit is what makes us want to yield to Him, you see. So it is really Jesus in us. But that's what we need to take more consciousness about. It is Jesus in me. It is not just hanging around with Jesus in the neighborhood. It is Jesus in me, and as the Bible says, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen to this statement from Prophets and Kings 2.33. Transformation of character is the testimony to the world of what? An indwelling Christ. What's an indwelling Christ? Christ dwelling in you. Christ lives in you. The Spirit of God produces a new life in the soul bringing the thoughts and desires into obedience to the will of Christ, and the inward man is renewed in the image of God. So it's Christ in you. Now, I know this sounds, may sound a little mystical, but that's really the wording used in both by Jesus in the New Testament as well and as in the spirit of prophecy. This is a very, very intimate relationship, Christ in you. In general, the evidence of the Spirit is not by powerful miracles and supernatural manifestations. And as we said in the first session, it's by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. That's the real manifestation that Christ actually lives in you. The evidence is the fruit, Jesus 
the Spirit reveals Jesus and His Spirit of self-sacrifice. I have a friend. I had a friend here in California, in fact, when I used to pastor in Northern California. He was an extraordinary young man because he was only about five years older than I am, so he's an extraordinary old man now. And uh, when he came to the Lord Jesus, he came to the Lord Jesus completely. He never looked back. He was a chemical engineer, and he, he fixed his eyes on Christ and never let him go. Um, he used to give. He started giving most of his money away. One day I found out he'd never told this to anybody, that he gives about 90% of his income to people. And, um, and he prays. He's prayed for people. There have been even resurrections as a result of it. One baby. A remarkable life, really, but it's very much off the radar screen for most people because he doesn't want it. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to talk about himself or what he is doing. He's reluctant about my sharing it. But most of the places I share that, he is not even close to where that is. Well, one time, he started, he, started uh, he, really, he really took Jesus seriously. And so he started reading the Spirit of Prophecy, and he discovered the book uh, Diet, Councils on Diets and Foods. And that's a very heavy book because it has a lot of one-liners without any context. And so you can make a lot of statements about that that are very tough. But he was a chemical engineer, so he was well-trained. He started thinking through some of these things, and he, started, he decided to go into a much more simplified diet, which is basically fruit and grains, twice a day. And with that, he lived. That's all. And you know how much money he spent a month? What his food bill was in a month? $27. Uh, no. 27 cents a day, $10 a month. 27 cents a day, $10 a month. Why? Because most of the fruit, he didn't have to pay for it because either he had it in his garden or the neighbors, or, and it was free. And then he bought the grain bulk, you know, 50-pound stuff, you know, barley and wheat and corn and whatever it is. And that's all he spent money on regarding food. But he was strong as an ox. One time we, we worked um, in, in the church and we had a, a, um, a work bee, remember? You know, does anybody remember work bees? You know, we, got, we needed to dig ditches to, to get our sprinkler system going. So a bunch of us men started digging, you know, and that's hard work. Well, we would, we would work 20 minutes and rest 15 minutes, you know, and 20 minutes and rest 15 minutes, but not Mike. Mike was just doing it, whistling as he went for hours, never took a rest, not once. And then he skipped lunch because, of course, he wouldn't eat, you know, all the other food that we had, but, but he was happy that we did. He worked for about eight hours solid. He did half of the job all by himself. He would um, do exercise and stuff. One day he, he was biking. He broke his clavicle. He fell. He broke his clavicle, and his clavicle started showing up. I mean, it just came out. 
But he went home instead of going to the emergency room. He went home because he was now really in the habit of praying to God about anything and everything. And so he knelt down in his room with great, great pain. And he says, God, I know you can take this pain away if you want to. But if you want me to learn something about pain and help me understand what you have gone through regarding pain, I'm willing for this pain to stay on. So it's up to you, whatever you want to do with my life. Well, he finished pray praying and the pain went away instantly. Now you still have a bone sticking out there. He went about his business with a bone sticking out. Okay, I mean that sounds pretty strange. And then he realized, well, I better set this bone, you know, I need to set this bone. So he walks into a, a, a walking clinic. Happy, big smile, bone sticking out, you know, big smile. And so the doctor says, the first thing into his mind, says, what are you on? You know, you must say, some powerful drug because you are a happy guy and you got a bone sticking out. What's wrong with you? And he says, in typical of Mike, he says, I'm on Jesus. And that's really, and he meant it. He, he, it wasn't to put it on. He was on Jesus. That's what it was. He was just trusting in Jesus. And so he set him up. And he says, make sure you get a lot of calcium, you know, milk and cheese and all of that stuff. And of course, he had long ago sorted that out. And he's figured, what's, what has a lot of calcium? He figured, a kiwi has a lot of calcium. And so he's stocked up on kiwis. Doctor says, come and see me after four weeks. It'll take six weeks. Don't move it. Don't do anything strenuous. You know, with that shoulder, it needs to be stationary. Well, he goes home. And after two days, he doesn't feel very good that he's not moving. He doesn't do the exercise that he usually does. And so he goes swimming with that, you know, broken shoulder, clavicle. And I asked him, Mike, what's the story? I mean, you had this broken bone, you go swimming, crawling. Not just, you know, it's not, not just floating. It's doing this. He says, well, yeah. I said, I... I I could feel something moving there, he said, but, uh, but it was fine. It was fine. Sure enough, after three weeks, the doctor said, come and see me in four weeks. I'm going to check it out. After, and it takes six weeks. After three weeks, he feels that this is completely healed, so he goes back. And the doctor can't believe his eyes. He says, I've never seen a bone heal so fast. What did you do? He says, I ate a lot of kiwi, <laughs> you know. And so the guy probably, you know, he rolls his eyes and saying, what, whatever. But that was Mike. Mike, a completely dedicated person to whatever he saw, whatever was truth, he embraced it with all his heart. But it wasn't just about his diet. He, you know, his, his, his stamina, his body became so well calibrated to to everything that he didn't need, catch this, he didn't need air conditioning in California in the summer, nor did he need heat in the winter. He had glasses for years. He threw them away. His eyesight got better. Now, where have you heard that? That your eyesight actually gets so, better, so much better that you throw this away? Hmm? Well, it wasn't just that. He had a great love for people, a great love for people. I remember I was pastoring the church and I was counseling a couple of ladies who have a really, really bad uh, marriage. One of them was really, really, really bad. And I wish I'd never heard some of the stuff that she told me about her husband. 
So they were divorcing. And so you know what happened? The first person that gets kicked out of the house, he invites to his home. He has a four-bedroom home. The second person, he invites to his home. The third person, he invites to his home. Now he's run out of bedrooms because one of that is his. The fourth person gets kicked out of the house. He invites him to his home. And he checks out of his own house and rents an apartment. And he keeps covering for these guys. And his purpose, he told me a year later, because we left in the meantime to, we left the conference and went somewhere else. He told me a year later, his intent was only one to pray these guys back to their wives. Now you may say, whoa, that's a tall order. Wouldn't it be a tall order? You know, you're dealing with people's damaged relationships. You're dealing with the will of individuals, you know. God may want something to happen, but people still have the last word as to whether certain things will happen, right? Of sorts. A year later, I came back to that church, and every one of those four marriages were healed. Every one of them. And I remember one or two cases that were so bad, and I said, that lady told me, Pastor, I got a brand new husband. Much better than when we were dating. It's just a totally different person. I don't know what happened to him. And I'm thinking, I know what happened to him. Mike's been praying for him. He had him in his house, and he's been praying for him. And you know what? I shared this story two years ago in Alaska, at an Alaska camp meeting. And one of those husbands was present. And he raised his hand, and he said, I am one of the four men that Mike took to his house. And what the pastor is saying is absolutely true. That's somebody who is living by the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us are going to go through this. My point is, it takes some sacrifice. It takes a real commitment. It takes a real following of the Lord Jesus. That is the evidence that Jesus is actually living in you. Because we don't think about Jesus' sacrifices. You know, Jesus gave... uh, uh, he, He... He was extremely sacrificial. I mean, the most sacrificial person in the universe to become a human being alone involves unheard of sacrifice that will take eternity for us to understand. And every one of his followers will experience something similar to that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why the Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Think about it. Why would he rejoice in his sufferings? What did Jesus say in the eighth beatitude? He says, he says um, blessed are you when they revile you and they, do, they say all kinds of things against you for my name's sake. Why? Because it shows that God can trust you that much more now that he can allow people to really harass your life. And that the result will be giving glory to Him. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. He says that in in jail. 
in, uh, to the Corinthians who says, We're afflicted in every way, not crushed, always caring about the body of the dying of Jesus. The life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. In other words, Jesus working in me is showing up. It's showing up. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, this is an evidence. This is the evidence that God really, only God could be at work in you for you to go through this. And God will need to be at work in a very serious way for you to go through this. So this is what he says in Colossians 1. The mystery hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. What is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what Paul says is that this idea that God can really live in our hearts is not just a theory anymore. This is actually real and true and intangible and concrete, and it makes a humongous difference, and everybody will pick up on that if that is what's happening in your life. Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So imagine yourselves, Christ in you, all right? Imagine that, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, this is all over the New Testament, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives. So if it's no longer I who lives, who lives? Christ lives in me. You see that? Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. Look at what it says in Colossians 3. Set your mind on the things above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So, you know, in other words, when He shows up, there's going to be a match. There's going to be a match. Him coming in person and you have been become like Him. That's going to be the match. It's going to be revealed when he shows up in glory. In 2 Corinthians, we read it. Persecuted, not forsaken, cast down, not destroyed, always carrying about the, in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body, in our mortal flesh. So the life of Christ in me. Or Romans 2, 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. For to me, to live is Christ, Philippians 1.21, and to die is gain. You see, it's all over the New Testament. Christ in me, Christ in me, Christ in me, in a very tangible, real way. We usually say that as a metaphor. We say that as, a, as a, some kind of a, a symbol of something. That's not how the New Testament presents it. The New Testament presents this as something tangible and real and concrete. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me. Haven't you not? I mean, I, I, I'm sure you have. There have been moments in your life when the Lord Jesus is so alive in you 
that you're able to, to think of people that normally you wouldn't care for. Or you want to, you want to, you're willing to make sacrifices that normally you know, no me, not me, no way, Jose. And you find yourself wanting to do this, eager to do that. And you say, you know what? I can only, I can only explain this because Jesus must be really working through me because normally I wouldn't care. That's Christ in you. That's Christ in you. The hope of glory. And that is the objective. That is what the Holy Spirit does. I am the way, the truth. I am the life. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. I came that you may have life. What life? We already have life. No, we don't. We have existence. But not real life. Real life is this abundant life. It is this life, that this, 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 this thing that cannot be quite explained. This thing that other people say, tell me about it. I, there's something about you. There's something about how you handle nonsense or you, you're never depressed. You're never, you're never sad. You always seem to have all the energy you need. You always think of other people. What is it about you? That's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not only does the Bible tell us Christ can be in us through the Spirit, but it also tells us we can be in Christ. And that's another whole story, but let's, let's refer to that. In Ephesians 1, you find a whole bunch of references. The faithful are in Christ. The blessed are are in Christ, verse 3. The chosen are in Him, verse 4. We are accepted in the Beloved, verse 6. In Him, verse 7, we have redemption. The mystery of God's will is known in Him, verse 9. In Him, we have an inheritance, verses 10 and 11. In Christ. So, I want you to visualize this. Christ in me, I in Christ, you know what that means? Christ around me. I'm being sandwiched by Jesus Christ. I'm being sandwiched by Jesus Christ. So the Bible teaches these two concepts. I am in Christ and He is in me. And how could you lose? I mean, you're, you're, you're bookended by Jesus Christ. And... <sighs> Let me, let me show you, let me tell you a story that illustrates this well. Frank Phillips used to be a pastor in the West here many years ago. And he wrote a book, um, His Rover Mind, one of the best little books I have read on how to relate to. It's very deep. And this is the time when there were no computers. So he really knew his spirit of prophecy very well by actually reading it. He tells the story of a woman who came to a large camp meeting. I don't know which one it is, but it, it had to be a very large one like Sokel's, for instance. It would be, you know, thousands and thousands of people, hundreds of pastors. And some pastors are assigned to counseling and prayer, and so he was assigned to that. And this young woman came and says, I'm really distraught. I'm about to have a divorce. And would you pray for me? And so he asked her, tell, tell me about it. And so he says, well, my husband... 
um, doesn't love me and he doesn't care about the kids, he doesn't care about the family, he doesn't care about himself, he drinks all the time, he can't hold a job, he um, is unreliable, we've gone counseling, nothing helps, he's a, he's a child and he's more of a burden to have around than not. And I've tried everything. And so he says, if you knew, if you knew of something that would really heal your marriage, would you be willing to do it? And she thought for a moment and says, well, I thought I was doing that already. She says, I want you to think about that. If you knew something that would heal your marriage, would you be willing to do it? He says, I think I would. You know, I, I thought I tried everything. But if I knew something would really heal the marriage, yeah, I think I would do that. I'm willing to do that. So he gave her a statement from the book Mount of Blessings, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 71. And he asked her to read it, take it home, read it, take it to her tent, I think it was, read it and then come back the next day and see if she decided to do that. What is it that he gave her? He gave her this statement. Uh, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing 71. Now listen carefully to this statement because people always misread this statement. The Father's presence encircled Christ and nothing befell him but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. All right, visualize that. The Father encircling Christ, right? Nothing happens to Jesus unless Christ, uh, the Father allows that. Here was his source of comfort, and it is for us. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. The blow that is aimed at him falls upon the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Now, who would send the blows aimed at you? The devil, right? The devil is the one that causes all the bad stuff, right? Would you agree? He is the originator of all that, right? So the blow that, that, that is aimed at you actually falls on who? On Jesus. If, if, what's the big if? If he's, if he's surrounding you, right? If he's sandwiching you, remember? All right? So he, it, it hits him first who surrounds you with his peace. So far, so good? Whatever comes to him, whatever comes to me, that is, comes from Christ. Uh-oh. Now, this is where most people misread it. The devil may, may want to hurt you, but you're surrounded by Jesus, and so he hurts Jesus instead. If something lands on you, it no longer comes from the devil. Do you follow? It no longer comes from the devil. Whatever comes to him comes from Christ. Now, he has no need to resist evil for Christ is his defense. Nothing can touch him except by our Lord's permission. And all things that are permitted work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8.28 So, what this text was saying to this young woman was, my no good husband 
is something God has given full permission to affect me in this negative way. In other words, the devil may have started that. My husband may be serving the devil, but if I'm surrounded by Christ, all the stuff is actually coming from Christ and not from the devil. Whoa. That takes some thinking, okay, to, to, to apply this. So she went home and she said, I'll do this. Do what? I'll ask Jesus to surround me with his presence. I'll ask Jesus, I'll surrender to him. I'll yield to him. I'll ask him to come into my life. So whatever happens to me no longer happens because of my no good husband. It no longer happens because of the devil. It happens because Jesus wants it to happen. A year later, she came back to camp meeting. And the pastor saw her in, on the campgrounds and remembered her and called her. He says, sister, tell me, I remember you had that problem with your husband in marriage. And what happened? Are you guys still together? What happened? He says, pastor, you have a few minutes. So they sat down and talked. And she said, the first three months... I had to commit myself to the Lord Jesus every single day. Some days it would take me a long time to surrender all to Him, to let Him have my entire life so that He can surround me with His presence. She said, my husband got worse, not better. He got meaner, he got cruel. He, evidently, he didn't beat her up or the children. So it was not a dangerous situation. But he got worse emotionally, psychologically, in terms of providing, you know, nothing. It was desperate moments. And then three months into this, overnight he changed. Overnight he changed. He got a job. He quit drinking. Overnight he paid attention to the kids. He started playing with him. He began to help me with the chores at home. He took me out every night. He, he, we would go on walks or we would go and get a, an ice cream or we would go on a ride every night. She said, I got a much better husband than I've ever bargained for ever in my life. He really loved me and he loved the children and it was a night and day difference between what it was before and what it is now. One of those nights we were on a, on a ride. Now, I mean, think about it. Very good, very good committed Christian husbands don't even do this much for their wives. And I'll tell you, any wife who would have be treated that way, she would be a happy wife. One night they were out. And they left the children, they had a, a, a girl and they had a, a baby boy about 11 months who was in a crib and the husband's mother was taking care of him. But she fell asleep in the couch uh, while the kids were supposed to have been sleeping. Unfortunately, the little boy got up and you know, woke up and he was a very willful child and he managed to get out of the crib 
and crawled all this way to the restroom, to the bathroom where he saw all of grandmother's medications open. She had not closed a single one. And this boy downed every one of those pills from all of those medications. Uh, the grandmother was able to see that. She had a, 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 a view to the bathroom and noticed that empty uh, containers and the boy on the floor barely breathing. And she was so overcome in shock by what, because she put two and two together, that she couldn't move. She couldn't get up from her chair. She couldn't scream either. She couldn't ask for help. She was literally paralyzed. It was such an overwhelming thing on her mind that she couldn't, that nothing, she couldn't do anything. Minutes later, the parents come home, and the parents see the, the grandmother like this. They see the child out of his crib. He see, they see him on the floor, and all of this medication gone. They, they grab the boy, and they grab the medications, and they rush to the hospital. After an hour, the baby dies. Talk about misery. Now think about that. Think about it. If you're a grandmother, think about this. I mean, it's bad enough if your grandchild dies. I mean, that's terrible enough. But if that grandchild dies because of your neglect, can you imagine trying to process that? Well, that was a big blow. That was a huge blow. That wasn't just a child dying. That was a child dying in the worst possible way. And so the husband couldn't handle it, took off. The in-laws couldn't handle that. They took off. And she was left all by herself. And everybody in church kept commiserating with her about what the devil was doing. After, after your husband had been, you know, all the change in his heart and how God has worked in his heart and look at what the devil is doing now. And sure enough, she started looking at what the devil was doing now, right? And so she let go of this commitment that she had to accept everything as if coming from Jesus. And for three weeks, she became deep into depression. And everybody else was fanning the flames by saying, look at what the devil has done. You know, when, just when your husband was really becoming the man that God wanted him to be. And this happens. One morning she sees a lady from a church park right on her driveway and she goes to open the door. And as she goes to open the door, the Spirit of God says to her in clear, distinct tones, didn't you promise me to accept everything as if coming from my hand? And she said, yes, Lord. 
I did. She opened the door and she says, please don't say anything. She said to the lady, please don't say anything because she knew that if she said anything, it would send her right back to depression, right back to thinking about her misery. And she says, don't say anything. I made a promise to Jesus six months ago that I would accept everything as if coming from his hands. And I have not accepted this as if coming from his hands. And I need all the strength and the support by anyone and everyone to help me get back to that. So please kneel down right here with me and help me pray that I would take even this tragedy as coming from Jesus' hands. And that brought the reversal in her own, in her own life. A few days later, um, the pastor said, so what happened to your husband? And what happened to your in-laws? She says, they came back. And when they came back, I was back holding on to Jesus again. And they said, my husband said to me, Honey, I don't know how you do it. All I know is that God clearly lives in you and that he is with you. And I'd like to know how that happens. And I'd like to experience that myself. Can you please teach me? Can you please show me how to relate to Jesus the way that you do? And the in-laws came and said the same thing, but gave her a piece of evidence that she never knew before. She says, when we were young parents, we had your husband, we, you know, he was a little boy. No, yeah, he was a little boy. And we became Seventh-day Adventists. We accepted the faith, we became Seventh-day Adventists, but... Only a year or two later, we left the church. We never came back. We never developed our spiritual dimension. We never took the boy to church. We never taught him anything. And that's one of the reasons why he has been the way he is. But now we see that you are a totally different person. You're totally different than most Christians we've ever known. Because you... You really trust God. You really count on Him. You really are happy. You really are like in His hands and we don't know how that's done. How do you do that? Please teach us how to relate to God the same way you relate to God. And so she said, I don't know why my son died and it's still painful. But I know three things, she said to the pastor. I know that one day when Jesus comes, I will see him again in the day of the resurrection. I now know that my husband will see him again and he will go to heaven with me and my in-laws will do the same because they followed up and they, were, they became baptized and they followed, you know, strong followers of Jesus. Jesus in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's how it works in real life. That's real life. You see, everything else is the same as no Christianity. If you do certain things, that's the same as traditional religions or Eastern religions or anything else. In other words, it's doing what you think you need to do to appease 
a, the masterful, bigger God. But Christianity is all about actually trusting Him and let him, letting Him take over your life and surrendering all to Him. And that is extremely scary because every one of us wants to hold on to at least one piece of control. But when you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, it is exactly that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you're able to deal with and, and go through things that would be impossible for us to go through in normal life. That is living by the Spirit. That is living by the Spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of the New Testament. And we thank you for the examples of faithful followers who have surrendered all to you and have asked all from you in their lives. And we pray that you may shape us into your image more and more, that we may be able to say unequivocally, Christ in me is the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.